0: So many of you have probably heard the name John Piper. He's the pastor of a church, or he was the pastor of a church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for thirty plus years. He he's written several books, and he is a keynote speaker, really, at conferences around the world. Uh, a, a group of us go every other year to the together for the gospel conference, and the the conference organizers often schedule him last. Uh, as kind of a climax to the event, because many people really anticipate hearing him speak. Many people consider him one of the boldest and most powerful preachers of the, of the last several years, but you may know all that. What you may not know is that up until his sophomore or junior year in college, John Piper was absolutely, utterly petrified to speak in public in any context. In grade school, he would just take an F or a zero on any project that involved a presentation before his classmates. He would literally get physically sick at the thought of speaking in front of people At church, he once tried to do a a one-minute presentation, but he was shaking so hard, he said everyone there just kind of started to look down to try to save him from embarrassment. And he just went home afterwards and cried. It became so debilitating that his mom took him to a child psychologist to try to get him some help. And He doesn't really know why, but the fear finally broke when he was asked to pray in chapel at Wheaton college. He said he just looked away from himself to God, and God did a supernatural work in him that broke that particular bondage from that day forward. In today's passage, the Apostle Paul boldly engages King Agrippa. Challenging him with with respect to his belief about God. The question is, where does Paul's boldness come from? And can we get access to that also? Our passage is Acts 26, verses 24 through 32. Spirit of the living God, light the word on fire. Paul has just finished testifying about the Lord Jesus and specifically about the resurrection. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe and Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Spirit of the living God, minister to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the essence of the message that I pray God helps us to see More clearly, this morning is this the gospel frees us to say anything to anyone at any time, provided we do so in love. The gospel frees us from fear to say anything to anyone at any time if we do so in love. Now, Our section here comprises the the dramatic dialogue that's been taking place between the judges and the tribunal and the apostle Paul. and So as we walk through our passage, I want to concentrate on, on three powerful statements that Paul makes. First, I am speaking true and rational words. Verse 25. Second, Paul says to the king, do you believe? I know you believe. Verse 27. And third, I wish all were like me except for these chains. Verse 29. So let's just begin with our our first statement. Have you ever... Told someone the truth, but they just didn't believe you. I remember when I was probably eight or nine, I was walking down the aisle of a grocery store, and in the aisle, strewn about on the floor, was an was an opened pack of baseball cards. I I loved baseball, I loved baseball cards, so I, I gathered them up to see if there were any players that I knew. In there, And I did that right as an employee walked around the corner. She didn't believe me when I protested that I had found them that way. She thought that I had opened the pack, presumably to steal some of the cards that were inside. Now, I managed to avoid doing any hard jail time uh, as a result of that incident, but I could... I can still remember to this day the feeling I had when the lady accused me of stealing those cards. I mean, I could see why the lady assumed that she knew what I had done because, frankly, the circumstantial evidence was rather incriminating. What's interesting, though, is that a person's response to the truth that you tell them may not have anything to do with you at all. In fact, a person's response to the truth is often influenced by how they feel about what you say. I mean, how many people, when they are first told tragic news, respond by saying, no, no, that, that can't be true. I mean, it's totally understandable. None of us wants to receive bad news. But there's an interesting dynamic on display in today's passage. Recall that this is a very high stakes drama that is playing out. The king is there with his sister, uh, the governor Festus, the military tribunal, the leading men of the city. They've all piled into the audience hall to interrogate or to hear from this rather intriguing prisoner named Paul. Now, as Art proclaimed last week, Paul Paul takes this opportunity to share that Jesus can rescue anyone through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, both in Paul's speech in Acts 24 and here in Paul's speech in Acts 26, right at the point that Paul gets to the resurrection, he is interrupted. And his witness about Jesus comes to an end. But in today's passage, things only get more interesting from here. Now, who knows why Governor Festus interrupted Paul. Maybe he felt Embarrassed because King Agrippa is sitting there and he didn't want to waste the king's time. Maybe he was experiencing conviction based on what Paul was saying. Or maybe when he just heard this idea about the resurrection, he thought, this is impossible. Whatever the case, Festus passionately accuses Paul of being crazy. Verse 24, with a loud voice, Festus said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, the second part of this statement seems to be an acknowledgement that no one was saying that Paul was an idiot. His brilliance was, was evidently obvious here. Paul responds, without fanfare, I am not Out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Verse 25. Note that sometimes the best response to a false accusation, even a passionately false accusation, is simply a clear and calm statement of the truth. Paul is essentially reiterating the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years prior. Come now, let us reason together. What's fascinating is that Isaiah's words spoken 700 years earlier were also in reference to the core message of the gospel. For the prophet continued, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So one of the reasons that Paul can be calm under pressure is that Jesus had done a supernatural work in him to change him. I mean, much like John Piper's situation, God did a supernatural work in John Piper and in the Apostle Paul, freeing them to preach the good news of the gospel. Paul's scarlet sins, Paul's crimson red sins as a persecutor of the church, had been washed whiter than snow. That changes a person. What about you? Have you experienced the joy and the freedom of your life being transformed by Jesus? If not, I want you to know this morning, no matter how darkly crimson your sins from your past are, no matter how scarlet red you believe your life is, Jesus Christ has power over evil and over sin. He once exercised a legion of demons from one person in an instant. Jesus Christ can save your soul. He can make your crimson sins whiter than snow. So cry out to him this morning. Part of the joy of sharing the gospel is describing what Jesus has done for us. But this isn't just a a, a sentimental or or a subjective recounting. Much like our celebration of Advent, the reason we are joyful is because our testimony about Jesus is rooted and grounded in historical fact. Our faith is not a baseless hope. Rather, when we talk about Jesus, we do so speaking true and rational words. This is the other reason that Paul can be confident. The first is the supernatural work God has done in him. The other is that he has very good reasons that support what he's actually saying. Festus thinks Paul is out of his mind because he's testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. But I'm 100% with Paul on this one. When he earlier said to them, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Acts 26 and verse eight. I mean, if being resurrected from the dead didn't prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be, what possibly could God has the power to do anything. Therefore, the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 and verse 3. It is a very true and rational thought to acknowledge that because God is God, he can do any miracle any time any place he wants to. Therefore, the power of God and the clear rational truth of the gospel frees us to say anything to anyone at any time, providing we do so in love. I am speaking true And rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Paul realizes, he's very self-aware, he realizes he is speaking boldly here to the king, but he goes for it. May God use his example to free us from our, our timid and our tepid invitations to believe in Jesus. Paul tells the man, he tells the man who has power over his life, to him, Paul says, I know you believe. Think about what that must have sounded like to everybody else on the tribune. How's that for closing the deal? Sometimes God can use a well-timed question or challenge to do a miracle, to supernaturally draw out the faith of a person who has been sitting on the fence. This, This isn't human manufactured decisionism. It's spirit-inspired prerogative working through a passionate vessel. Paul is calling out the fact that King Agrippa believes the Old Testament prophets spoke the truth. As Art pointed out last week, Paul had said that the reason he was on trial was because of his hope in the promises of God made to the patriarchs and to the 12 tribes. So Paul is basically looking at the most powerful man in the region and saying, look, you're in the same boat as me. You believe the promises too, king. And you know who else believed the prophecies given about the Messiah? That is, given about the king who was to come. King Agrippa's great-grandfather, Herod the Great. In fact, Herod believed the prophets so strongly, he believed in their truth so much that he executed the little boys of Bethlehem because he felt so threatened about a king who is now on the scene whose reign was prophesied so long ago. Another example of true historical and rational thinking is that all of the promises made by the prophets were eventually lived out publicly. In other words, to borrow the words of the passage, these things were not done in a corner. That's just an awesome phrase. It's just fantastic. It's so confidence instilling for us as believers. For example... Think about how careful and clear Luke is in his efforts to accurately, accurately communicate exactly what's happening throughout Acts. The level of detail that Luke gives us throughout Acts is absolutely extraordinary. He is a first-rate historian. Or consider how Luke opens his first letter. That is, his gospel account. He says... Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, just as they have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent theophilists, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Have you ever thought about what you would have done if you were an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus? Jesus? Or if the events of the book of Acts were lived out real time in your life? I know myself well enough to know. I I would have been trying to write those things down as clearly and as accurately as possible. But if you really think about it in context, going back to the first century, I don't know how a person could possibly improve upon what Luke has done. As we wrap up another glorious Advent season, think about the way Luke grounds the birth of Jesus in its proper historical and in its proper chronological context in the opening verses of Luke chapter 2. Maybe you've read these verses as a family over the last few days. It reads in this way. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Think about it with me. That's not hard to verify. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So it's not done in a corner. After he was born, Jesus was dedicated on the eighth day at the temple publicly. Jesus had A three year ministry all over the region. In fact, his ministry was so public that Mark 1, Luke 4, and Matthew 4 all say that his fame spread quickly throughout the entire region. This is not done in a corner. In fact, Jesus was so famous that Herod Antipas looked forward to seeing Jesus but he could, because he had heard so much about him, Luke 23 and verse 8. He was hoping that Jesus would perform a miracle for him. When Jesus came into a town, often the whole town would gather outside the house because everyone could not fit inside, Mark 2 and verse 4. Jesus was so famous, he was recognized in pagan territories, like like Syrophoenicia, where he exercised a demon from a woman's daughter. Mark tells us he didn't want anyone to know, but, but he could not be. He could not be hidden, Mark 7 and verse 24. Jesus once fed a crowd of upwards of 20,000 people. The men alone numbered 5,000. To state the obvious, that happened outside, not in a home and not in secret. These things were not done in a corner. Jesus was publicly crucified under Pontius Pilate. Praise God, his tomb was found empty three days later. After his resurrection, 500 witnesses once saw Jesus alive at one time out in public. He ascended into heaven, obviously, outside, In the open. In fact, the whole book of Acts takes place in and around the Roman Empire. And if you haven't noticed yet, at this point in the book of Acts, Paul created quite a stir in public every single place he went when he testified about Jesus. Not hard to verify and not done in a corner. Just think for a moment about the public, historical, and incomparably well-documented origin of Christianity compared to other world religions. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, said that the Book of Mormon was translated from writing on golden plates in a reformed Egyptian language, translated with the assistance of the Urim and Thummim and seer stones. He said an angel first showed him the location of the plates in 1823, buried in a nearby hill. Not easy to verify, and done in secret. Islam began when, according to Islamic text and tradition, an angel named Gabriel visited Muhammad in 610 AD while he was meditating in a cave. The angel ordered Muhammad to recite the words of Allah not easy to verify, done in secret. Hinduism's founder is unknown. It is based on the acceptance of the scriptures known as the Vedas, which are thought to be eternal emanations from the universe, which had been heard by sages at a certain time in the past, but were not created by human beings. Not at all easy to verify. It's done somewhere in secret. The founder of Buddhism is Siddhartha Gautama. He lived in the 5th century BC. He was born into a wealthy family. One day he saw four signs and he renounced his wealth and therefore became an ascetic. After almost starving to death, which will happen if you're an ascetic, he begins thinking about a middle way. While meditating under a Bodhi tree, he becomes enlightened or awakened, realizing that humans suffer because they insist on permanence in a world of constant change. He developed four noble truths and an eightfold path as a guide to life. Not easy to verify, and at least originally, done in secret. So why is Paul so bold? Paul is bold for the same reason I want you to be bold. Christianity can stand up over and against any challenger with respect to truth and ethics and is a coherent explanation of reality. Because Jesus has called you to himself and because he has commissioned you to go into the world, you are free to say anything to anyone At any time, just do so in love. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So this rather dramatic scene essentially caps off a series of dramatic scenes in this region, because Paul is about to set sail for Rome. Now as it relates to our particular passage, Paul ends his witness before the dignitaries and the king in the same way that he began that is, under arrest. The king and his sister and those around them, they get up, they walk away, and discuss the irony that Paul could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. But for the sake of the gospel, he remains in chains. Another irony emerges if you think about it. Take a look at this passage and ask this question, who is really free in this passage? And who is really in bondage? Earlier in Acts, Peter was arrested and in chains, and God freed him from prison, despite Peter's chains. God sent an angel to deliver him in in rather dramatic fashion, and Peter escaped. When Peter arrives at the home, or the gate of the home, where the believers are gathered, he knocks on the door. A little little servant girl named Rhoda comes and answers the door. She hears Peter's voice. She's so excited she forgets to let Peter in. And she runs back and tells everybody, guess what? Peter's at the door. And they respond by telling her, you're out of your mind. We've heard this before. They say, it can't be Peter. Peter. This is the implication. It can't be Peter, because we're here praying for his release. (laughs) But Peter was, in fact, freed from prison. So he (laughs) kept knocking. And eventually, utterly amazed, they finally let him in. For simply testifying to the reality of the great thing God had done, the others called poor little Rhoda, Crazy. Now, God does a different work in Paul's life. Rather than freeing Paul from prison for the sake of the gospel, God frees Paul in prison. Can you relate to this circumstance? Maybe you've been praying for a long time. That God would deliver you from your circumstances. That's not a bad thing to pray if you're in difficult circumstances. God, please deliver me from, from these circumstances. But may I suggest to you another prayer to add alongside that? Also pray, but if you choose not to change my circumstances, Lord, will you deliver me in my circumstances? Set my heart free to trust you regardless of my circumstances so that my soul will be satisfied in you no matter what is going on in my life. In our passage, Paul is the one who is accused of being out of his mind simply like Rhoda for describing the reality of the great work God had done. In this case... The resurrection of his son from the dead for the salvation of all who place their faith in his name. This just in, God is really powerful. The way God freed Paul in prison is that Paul is, is so convinced of the reality of the gospel through true and clear thinking that his heart had been so transformed with his encounter With Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Paul is now utterly free. He's utterly free wherever he is, in chains, not in chains, he's free to proclaim the good news about Jesus, his beloved Lord. Paul doesn't ask to be released here so that he can gain his his physical freedom. Rather, it might actually be more accurate to say that Paul actually is highlighting his spiritual freedom by telling the king and anyone else who can hear him, both great and small, I actually wish that you were like me, except without these chains. F.F. Bruce called Paul the apostle of the heart set free. Do you know the freedom of the gospel that utterly transformed Paul's heart and life? Paul's freedom can be your freedom this morning. Do you know that the gospel that saved the apostle Paul and set his heart on fire, set his heart free... Is the very same gospel that saved you no less powerful? Paul's freedom can be your freedom this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be set free from your bondage to habitual sin this morning. You need to be set free from your bondage to shame just seems to fall on your shoulders like a cloak? Do you need to be set free from your your bondage to this world? Do you need to be set free from your bondage to fear or even to death? Do you need to be set free this morning from... from being more concerned about what people think about you than you are about what God thinks about you. You need to be set free from any bondage that makes anything seem bigger than God is in your life. Jesus freely gave up the glory, rightly do his name, so that you might know the freedom and the joy of his love forever so this morning may you may you come to know the grace of the lord jesus either either for the very first time or may you come to know more fully than you ever have the freedom that attends the gospel it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the one the Son sets free is free indeed. Paul is now free to stay in chains, to obey Jesus, free to say anything to anyone at any time in love. And for that matter, so are we. Let's pray. Lord, would you, would you move among us by the power of your spirit? Lord, if there, if there is, is a person still sitting on the fence about giving their heart to you, about trusting in what Jesus has accomplished for us, I pray that right now, at this moment, you would make it utterly clear to them that there is no obstacle to them coming to faith in Jesus. If that's you, thrust yourself upon the mercy of God. Or Father, if some of us, you are making us more clearly aware of of places deep within our hearts where there is still bondage to anything. Would you move now by the power of your Holy Spirit and may the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts drive out everything else except for the love of Christ. So Lord, now we rejoice because we know that apart from Jesus we would have no hope. But because of the cross, we have been set free and we have a hope forever. So cause our hearts now to overflow with thankfulness for the reality of the gospel, that true and rational message. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.